attention architects, and creative minds. Get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. Architecture is very much like writing a paper. You need to have a thesis, which is a concept, and then you build upon it. So like, can your concept or your main idea Can it be understood by a person who's there without you explaining it? I tend to like buildings that if I were a student and my teacher was like, go draw a diagram of what that building means and I'm able to do it, I think that's successful because I figured it out. Welcome back to Context and Clarity. This is the place where authors, experts, and thought leaders come to have engaged conversations with entrepreneurial architects just like you. I'm Jeff Eccles, and every Tuesday afternoon on Context and Clarity Live, my co-host Katie Kangas and I, and our live audiences joining us from all across the internet, we all have a conversation with a special guest to search for clarity around the things that matter most to you, the architect, no matter what your context is. It's been a fun fall season so far, and if you've enjoyed our conversations with Carl Sergio, Amanda Dunfield, and Mark Stankey, you're going to love this one with Hibba Body. Hibba is an architect, an advocate, a mentor, and a comedian. So we explore how truth and authenticity drive relatability and why improv is the answer to everything. Get ready. This is a good one. Enjoy our conversation with Hibba Body. All right, Entree Architect community, we're back. It's Context and Clarity Live. We are here in our, you know, I said it last week. I don't think we can call it our, you know, we're back into our new fall season. We're four weeks in at this point. So welcome back to Context and Clarity Live at our fall season here. It's been a great ride. We've had three great conversations so far, and I'm pretty sure we're going to have a really fun and great conversation today as well with our special guest. If you're new around here, This is our time 
to focus on the things that matter most to you, the architect. doesn't matter what your context is. And, you know, we're going to push and pull and pick at that context as well. We're going to break outside the box and really discuss things that matter most to you in your life and your work, maybe in your relationships as well. So welcome back. Glad that you're here. I am joined as always by my co-host, Katie Kangas. Welcome, Katie. Thank you, Jeff. It's good to be here. I am glad that you're here. I, I'm trying to peek out through the the door. I don't see any snow yet, but <laughs> it's feeling a little bit chilly in Indianapolis. I bet it's more chilly in Minneapolis, but welcome. Happy fall. Thank you. Yes, we've had a little frost already. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I walked to the coffee shop this morning. It was 40 degrees mm. and uh, tomorrow I'll be in Colorado and I should have been more prepared for 40 degrees because it's it's going to be different in Colorado tomorrow. So we may see snow on our trip out there. We'll see. My girls would be so excited. They can't wait. Send them. I'll pick them up yeah. to the airport. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's introduce our guest today. Our guest is an architect, a DEI strategist and comedian this is why I'm really excited about today, who focuses on truth and authenticity in design, in mentorship, in advocacy, in comedy, and in life. She's on Crane Chicago Business 20 Under 20, and she's also performed at Second City in Chicago, which I think is super cool. Hiba Bati, welcome to Context and Clarity Live. Hello. Thanks for having me. Welcome. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's great to have you here all the way from Los Angeles today. So, you know, we started out talking about the weather, which is really surface stuff, according to who is it, Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> so what's it like going back and forth? Or I don't know how much you actually go back and forth, but going from Chicago to LA. Mm -hmm. Is that a weather shock for you? For my body, yes. For my brain, no. Like my brain knows okay. what it's supposed to be, but your body adjusts so quickly. So to be honest, when I landed back in Chicago, I was a complete brat. I was like, what is this? Why is it humid? <laughs> like, and I'm Chicago through and through in my heart. So that was a little disappointing that my body betrayed me like that. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's quite different. And ironically, me and my husband go back to Chicago during the colder months usually because sure. it's like yeah. around the holidays. Yeah. So it doesn't really make sense why we travel to Chicago when it's cold because Chicago summers are literally the best and i think they actually beat la summers but yeah i think it is quite different and you can just tell by looking at the plants to be honest oh sure yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely so different. yeah yeah this is definitely true well i'm glad that you're here you know now i'm glad that we have the weather or the experience i guess it's the experience of the weather we've got that settled we were talking before we went live about the fact that you are a DEI strategist, and of course, the firm that you work for, Valerio Dewalt Train, who I am familiar with, being also spent a lot of years in Chicago. That was one of the, the sort of the stalwarts of the Chicago scene. You developed the DEI strategy, I believe, for VDT, and you're also a comedian. And I think some people might go, um, yeah, how do those two work together? Do you keep those separate or is there some way to weave those two together? You know, and, and I know one's sort of professional and one's probably more hobby, but how do you weave those together in your brain? You've already talked about your body betraying on the weather. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's funny because I actually think architecture can also get thrown into the mix. People are like comedy and architecture. That makes no sense. Okay. 
And I was okay. just at a uh, hosting an award show design night for Chicago. Right, and right. I had to say jokes in front of an entire a crowd that was mixed, but mostly architects. And I remember when I walked in, I looked, I was like, these people don't look funny and they don't look like they can laugh at jokes. So it was like really nerve wracking. So I feel like all three of those seem like they don't belong, but they actually all kind of influence each other in a way. And I, the more I do each of them, the more I see that they're interrelated. In terms of DE&I and comedy, I think those two are extremely related because a lot of comedy is storytelling and sure, yeah, that makes sense. Telling your truth, right? So some of my best material are the ones where I kind of dig into my culture or my upbringing. And those are the ones that get the biggest laughs because that's actually what evens the playing field. It brings everyone together. So when you think you might be different, you see more of the common ground between the two. And I think in terms of like advocacy in particular and comedy, I think comedy is one of the best ways to talk about very serious topics in a more like digestible and approachable way. You can teach pretty big lessons through jokes or through how you storytell about pretty serious topics in a more relatable way. And I think you can actually teach lessons a little bit better when it comes to like being funny or being relatable. Yeah, I think that relatability is the key, right? So there's a, another show that I do called Shadow Shorts. It's interviews with people on the innovation side, the tech world, as it relates to AEC. And the interview I did yesterday was about focus, but we came all the way back around to storytelling and relatability, which is really interesting. We were talking about go-to-market strategies, so it's something completely different than most of this audience is interested in. But when it came down to how do we sell this? How do we get investors? How do we get people on board, users, all of that? It's the same thing. How do we make this, whether it's new tech or, or something like that, how do we make it relatable? And I do love that. Or I love that idea because I do think comedy is a common language in a way. Yeah, laughing is great because everybody does it. <laughs> if you can find a way to connect people through laughter, that is that feels really good to do that. Yeah. And it definitely feels like you're connected. Like even when you watch a comedian talk about something and you laugh with them, you know nothing about them, obviously, but you feel really connected to them in that moment. And you're like, wow, we share that same thing or we find that, like our parents both do this and that's hilarious. You know, it's yeah. definitely a way to connect. And I think relatability is huge. And especially even in architecture, connecting to the client and your community that you're designing for. Like it's all about connections. It's all about mm -hmm. reaching like a broader community. At the end of the day, all three of those, DE&I, architecture and comedy. Yeah. You know, and I said this in the introduction, your focus or you know, the thing that drives you is truth and authenticity. And I wonder about that. I'll take it in the comedy direction first, but there are certainly people, I suppose, that could get up on stage and make everything up, right? All the stories that they're telling, I suppose they could fabricate everything. And there's certainly, there's exaggeration and things like that. But having watched a lot of comedians I like to believe I can tell, oh, this person is really authentic. This person, I went to a show maybe a month ago now, and it's like this guy is telling these stories, these jokes, and this is not fabricated. Maybe exaggerated some, but 
this is straight from his life. And I think we feel that. And I think that authenticity, you know, when we get to design, I think that's important as well. I think more people react to authenticity in that realm as well, or react positively to authenticity in that realm as well. What came first for you, architecture school or comedy? Technically, architecture school. But when I looked back on it, I was always being funny in my house with my siblings. And my parents are actually pretty funny too. So I think comedy came first, but I was able to, I think, be better at it because of architecture. Architecture school really drills into you like trying whatever. You have to build five different iterations of a model by tomorrow. Sure. You just have to do it even if you can't even think it. You know what I mean? You're just constantly doing. And I think that helps in a lot of aspects in life without like waiting for perfection or waiting for the perfect idea. You're just constantly trying to make something. And the other thing about architecture school is that it teaches you the importance of having like a product at the end. Mm. And so through architecture school, I think I was I made it more of an effort to create tangible comedy. Like, let me actually write sets or let me make a video or let me have something that shows what I'm already doing at home, but other people can enjoy or it's actually out there in the universe. So they both influenced one another. That's such a cool idea that iteration in architecture where you just have to keep going is so similar to doing improv in comedy. Because if you just stop and you pause, that's the worst thing you could do. You got to just kind of like keep going, keep working, keep trying to find that angle, keep trying to find the laugh and that resonance with your connection with all these other, other people. Yeah, definitely. And to your point earlier about like authenticity, I think people can spot it. I don't necessarily think it's... So the cool thing about comedy is there's the truthful aspect and that's the part that relates to people. There's like the emotional aspect. That's what people are drawn to, the why of the character, like the reason why they're doing it. Or like if someone can see a reel and think, oh my gosh, I just did that yesterday at my house. Like this is so relatable. People can spot authenticity because they can relate to it. But the cool thing also about comedy is that it's imaginative. And I think that in improv, almost everything is made up, but it's based in the relationship that you have as a character and the character that you're dealing with on stage, like your partner. So there is this amazing balance between the authentic and the truth, and then also the imaginative. And I think a lot of comedians, you can tell when they're on stage, like, oh, this is clearly not true because they're talking to a snake or something like that. I don't know. (laughs) Something very like fantastical about it but it's so rooted in how a human would act that they're taking you along for the ride. And I think that is what makes it authentic, even if it's completely fantasy, you know? So there's like a balance of truth and authenticity, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're only talking about your life. It's about how do I connect with the audience in this way and imagine with them. And isn't that at the heart of what we need to get to with DE&I? I think it's easy for some of us to say, oh, here's this diversity, equity, and inclusion policy that we're developing or you know, however we're couching it. And that's not the point at all, right? The point is, how do I treat this other person? How do I interact? I mean, I guess to use the nomenclature, how do I interact with this other character who's not like me, has a different experience than me, et cetera, et cetera. 
I can see exactly where you're coming from and how these things do fit together like that. It's kind of a beautiful analogy. Yeah, actually, I think you even made me realize by saying like, oh, it's another character. I mean, I think that's totally true. This idea of, at least in improv, when you meet someone on stage, you're supposed to have very little ego and you're supposed to work as a team. And the goal is listening and building upon each other's ideas. So this idea of how do I take someone who maybe thinks, or who you think is very different, how do we find the common ground? And how do we basically coming from a space of understanding and building upon rather than dismissing certain aspects? I mean, my improv teachers used to tell me, like, instead of thinking of the next line or thinking of a joke that'll make... Mm -hmm audience laugh, actually react to what your partner said to you. And I think that in terms of communicating with people who you think are different than you, it's authentically listening. And instead of coming up with a comeback, it's, oh, let me actually hear what you just said. And let me respond to the words that actually came out of your mouth. (laughs) So there is definitely a sense of connection and unknown, but also being in an environment that you're hopefully making it safe for people to share and then connect through it. Yeah. That's where you have to get to, right? To get to the yes and part, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the listening, having the safe place so that I I guess if I'm, for those of you, all right, we're getting into the improv nomenclature here, but yes and is one of the keys, right? of, Of improv. And it seems to me that if we were to move that over to, the E and I, then I've got to listen so that I can respond in that way. And that would set up a safe place. Yes, I'm going to work with you here. Literally, yes, I'm going to work with you here. Yes, and here's what we can do. Okay, now you've got me fascinated. (laughs) One other thing is like taking it a step further. And I don't know if it's maybe a little more comedy though, but one of our teachers taught us in addition to yes and, yes because. Mm. And so it's like you are already building the foundation that you're together. So if your partner is like, oh, look at that walrus, that's a bad example. But like, I feel so sad about our party being canceled. And it's like, yeah, I can't believe mom. You know what I mean? Like you're saying yes and you're adding to the idea, but you're saying the reason why. So you're building the context and you're basically, yeah, you're, developing the scene and the because part I thought was actually a pretty big game changer because it's not like, yes, and here's my idea. It's like, let me take your idea and we're going to literally build off of it. And I'm going to help you establish the foundation. Yeah. I like that. I have not heard that before. And I think that is more powerful. If we think about architecture, right? We'll take another little detour, slight little veer left, but that's what architecture is too, right? When we're working with the community, we're working with the client, the user, the whatever the context of the project is. Yes, because it's fascinating. So a lot of us feel this out, this sort of like, how much do you give authentically to be able to make that connection happen? But you also do all this mentorship. And so you have to also verbalize this process to be able to train future architects to be able to do this. So how do you start to look at that balance? How do you start to say, okay, you share this much of yourself and that's that authentic voice that you're bringing forward, but also you're across the table, your partner, your character that you're across from is from such a different context. 
here is how you can generously bring them in and bring that connection to a reality. With mentoring, and you bring up like a really good point. It's like, well, yeah, how do you teach people how to share from themselves and also like make a connection? Because at the end of the day, architects are building for other people. Your job as an architect is to learn about like the community or the client or the people that you're building for. But it's also to be the imagination behind how you can take it to the next level because we are trained as thinkers of design. So when I mentor, I really try to teach my students how to view, like how to ask questions or how to think outside the box. Because it's one thing to say, for example, oh, I'm working, you know, on an office space. And it's like, well, how much square footage do you need for an office? Like we can be trained in that. Like almost anyone can be trained in that part. But the thing that I try to teach my students is how do you bring yourself authentically to the table. So you're not like afraid of sharing ideas from your upbringing or your cultural background. And then two, how do you think of it in a more holistic sense or a bigger approach? And a lot of the questions that I ask my clients tend to not technically have anything to do with architecture. It'll be more about how do you use the space, more about like human interaction. For example, we did a project for our students, we did a theoretical project about like a playscape for the future. And the, the prompt was basically, how do you build a playground for the future, a playscape for the future? And instead of focusing on like, okay, what tangible thing can we put here? Or like, what structure should it be? It was a lot of, well, how do you imagine? What are synonyms of imagine? How do different ages play? You know, what was a really strong memory for you as a child when you had to imagine something? Or how did you connect with someone else when you played with them? What energizes you? What takes away energy? Things like that. And through asking questions like that and really getting to know the people that you're building for, oh, this is like how they think, how they live, how they interact. You'll usually find something that's like a gem that will propel your design forward. And then you can obviously add the technical stuff. You know how to design, you know, the space that needs to accommodate it. But that sort of getting to know the people that you're building for in that way, when you're asking questions that don't feel like they relate to architecture, I think that's how some of the strongest projects get made. And in terms of being authentic to who you are, I think like, for example, I think one of my students is actually on the line, Ben Kataka. So shout out to him. He's one of the <laughs> students I mentored and I'll use him as an example we did a gastronomic center. So a place where you would teach people about food and get food and you know whatever that means. And the students built out this whole project and they did an excellent job. And he's an excellent drawer. And he would draw these very whimsical, almost like Dr. Seuss-esque forms. And instead of being like, well, that doesn't fit. It's like, you're really good at this. And this is how your brain thinks. And I want you to draw what our building should be. And he did. We had him do hand sketches and he brought all of his really cool ideas to the table and, and we got an award for it. And it's because we saw you know different advantages from different people. And there was another student who literally talked about, well, I learn all my cooking on Instagram. I mean, we do that, but we wouldn't think about that immediately. And we're like, oh, there's this whole generation that's learning in a completely different way. And so if you just kind of say, well, you're too young to have an idea. I'm not really going to listen to you. Instead of being like, well, this is what 
my family does, or this is what how me and my classmates think, or just not being afraid to say how you live or being like, well, I spent every Sunday learning with my grandma because we didn't have access to what, you know what I mean? Like those things make for an end product that's more authentic to the community and brings more ideas to the table. Because the last thing you want is everyone thinking the same. And so the sooner I think that you realize that, oh shoot, my idea is a little different and I'm actually kind of scared to share it because everyone else is thinking in a certain way, but you have the courage to actually share it. Managers want that. They want new ideas because they're like, oh shoot, we didn't think about that before. This will make our project stronger. So I try to teach my students, don't be afraid of you know, any of these things that might be holding you back. Think about your life and how you went through life and how it would impact the building that you're making or what questions you would ask or how you would connect to the community when you're asking, when you're on a team and you're trying to figure out what type of building to make. I think that's really, really important. And you connect with people better that way and they're able to share, you know, how they use the space more genuinely. Yeah, I think that's right. But I wonder how hard is it? Because it takes a lot of courage. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think back to, you know, times in my life, of course, it's when we're in certain phases of our life, certain ages, your middle school or something like that, you want to be like everybody else. And, you know, you yeah. go through these, these types of phases. But even as adults, it can take a lot of courage. I think the way that you just said it a minute ago is like, oh, everybody's kind of thinking in this way, but I'm thinking in a different way. Yeah. So how hard is it to teach that? Or what do you have to do to draw that out of people? That's a really good question. And I don't know if I have the answer because I will say that's something that I even struggle with sometimes. I think if you're in an environment where everyone's thinking one way and you're thinking different, the easiest approach is to blend in. And also like mm. those ideas that tend to be along the same wavelength get praised more too. So you'll get more attention for probably not sticking out and you'll probably be recognized for not sticking out. And then you kind of learn in that way. I think architecture school is like that. There's like a certain type of architecture that we learn. And then you realize I can be successful if I do this type of thinking. But it's not really true to who you are. And so it's kind of like code switching, but for design. It's like, I'm designing for a certain crowd. I'm designing for a certain type of people. But I'm not including my people in it. Or I'm not really including me in it. So it's realizing, I think the strength that you have and being you and being individual. And a lot of times that comes from practice because once you do it enough times, you realize, hey, wait a minute, my designs are good if I design them like this, the way I want to, but you don't really know it until trial and error. And I think a way to help people is also mentoring people in that way. If you have someone above you that's looking out for you, that's welcoming you for those differences, that makes a big change too. But it's hard to do it in a world where it's not really working in your favor. Mm -hmm. And I'll like bring it to comedy to give like a really easy example. When I'm in improv and I have my partner across from me and they put me in a scene of, I don't know, staying out late and we come home and our parents are going to greet us at the door. <laughs> I think when I'm on stage, because my partner is probably not a Pakistani American Muslim. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I need to come up with a line that they'll get so I don't let my improv partner down. 
Because if I go too specific to what I'm thinking, Mm -hmm. then they might not get it. And also the audience might not laugh. So I'm thinking, what would a typical American say in this situation rather than what I would say? And in that way, then I'm not really being authentic, but I'm being a team player. And it's hard because in that situation, because you have responsibilities to your team and you know all of that. But that's like a good example because it's like a tricky predicament. Mm-hmm. You want to help everybody out, but you also are kind of masking yourself. And that happens in architecture a lot too, because the fastest and easiest way to success is thinking in a certain way. Sure. So it's difficult. But what I do try to teach my students is I just, when we have those conversations, when we're brainstorming, when we're trying to figure out the program or schematic design for our theoretical project, I really try to ask, and I see them doing it too. I'll ask a question and they'll answer in like a typical way that like a high school teacher would want you to respond. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, like actually think about your experience. Like what happened? Like, And I try to encourage those conversations so they make the connection between this is how I live my life and this is how it can translate to design or this is how it can translate to an idea or a concept. These are the type of questions that I ask. Like I'm trying to get them to think, these are the type of questions that I ask to get to a concept or a thesis. Small firm entrepreneur architects, get ready to build a better business with the Entree Architect podcast where business meets architecture. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, the host of Entree Architect Podcast. Join me every week for inspiring interviews with passionate people that share proven strategies to help you build a better business. If you think there is a problem, one, you can't make a move until you have a plan in place. The accountability chart really helps plan, okay, for the business six to 12 months out, this is what we need. We cover it all from financial management to marketing, sales, productivity, and beyond. There's two sides of it, right? So there's the one when you don't have any work. So you're like, well, I'm either going to charge enough to be profitable or I'm going to go out of business. Or you have so much work and you have backlog and you don't need any more work. So you charge way more. I'd also say lagging measures, one of the best, like the best, best, best. (laughs) So for any client, for any professional service um, company, if you're going to take one thing away from what we're talking about today, is to look at a number called the labor efficiency ratio. Entree Architect is not just a podcast. It's your secret weapon for success. With over 500 episodes, it's one of the longest running architecture podcasts in the world. You're sure to find the information you need to elevate your business. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now and join the community of small firm entrepreneur architects building better businesses. And this is how I would have to package it in order to narrate it to somebody else in a way that like still considers all of those things. So mainly, I mean, I don't know if I have an answer to be like, go out and do this and you can do it. Yeah. So maybe I should think about that answer. (laughs) You talked about answering the way that a high school teacher would want you to answer. I mean, there's, there's an awful lot of programming that goes on when we're young, well, even as adults, I mean, it's, I would argue it still continues. So maybe the answer is to bring improv into architecture school. I'm thinking of the people that are in our audience that are educators. 
I don't teach studio. I teach pro practice in a different way. But, you know, a studio based on improv, I think, could be fascinating. We actually make all of our students, we do improv with them in the beginning. And nice. it's fun. <laughs> it's good. And also, I think in terms of just public speaking, because that's such a, mm-hmm. a big skill is to stand up there and say what's on your mind. That basically helps with getting over the shyness of like, it's okay to say what's on your mind. I think that's the biggest lesson. You're not going to hurt anybody by doing it. You know what I mean? Like the world's not going to crumble. One of my improv teachers, (laughs) this could be taken the wrong way, but she said it in a really nice way. She's like, who do you think you are basically to think like the world ended because of your one like flub on stage like it's fine like Mm -hmm. get over you know but she's that in loving way where it's like it's okay to make mistakes you know it's okay to have a bad joke here and there and the world's not gonna end think about it for as long as your set is which is like 10 minutes and then get over it and move on so yeah i think well okay my step i guess this is what i would be to give advice on that is try to spend time making things that make you happy and not somebody else and practice your skills in that way and realize that the things that you bring to the table are a strength or an asset. And that just comes with kind of like skill and practice and craftsmanship. And the other thing in architecture too is it's always a team sport. Sometimes you might come to the table thinking, I have literally the best idea and I know it. And then it doesn't get chosen and you and then you're okay with it. But just to come with the idea, like not being afraid to come with the idea, because most likely your project manager is probably going to tell you no, or there might be one designer in the firm that's going to dictate everything anyways, but at least you're getting the practice of saying it, of taking up space, of pitching it. So I think one thing, just maybe try to do that like once this week, if you're in the office and you have an idea, don't be afraid to share it. There we go. Yeah. Challenge. Challenge accepted, hopefully, from those listening. Yeah. There's a term you used called code switching. I actually don't know what that means or what context that term comes from. So a lot of the times it's, for example, if you have a way that you speak at home with your community, but then you change it to fit in with the majority of the people around you. For example, at work, you speak in a different way to be taken more seriously or it's a switch that you do because you have to fit in with a certain crowd and it takes, you know, emotional energy and all of that. And it's also, it makes it more helpful for you to like succeed in an environment that doesn't really accept you, but it also is a way of kind of hiding yourself too in the process. So that's kind of why I used it. It's not necessarily the correct term in this context because we're talking more about action or designing. So code switching is more for language But when I was trying to think of a term, I was like, I think that's the closest one I can think of. And it's essentially, yeah, just you're basically thinking and designing for someone outside of yourself at the end of the day when you do that. And it takes away from you developing like, oh, what makes me unique? I mean, there's no other person like you in the world, right? No one else has your experiences. I have a sister that I'm really close to. I talk about this all the time. We basically have all of the same experiences, but we're two completely individual people. So there's no one else like you, but you're also like blessed with all of these different things that have happened to you in your life. So how do you bring that to the table? You got to have your own voice for that. You can't expect someone else to speak for you. 
So that's kind of yeah the part about being authentic to yourself and saying, you know, mm-hmm. if I don't do it, no other Hibba will. You know what I mean? Like, there's no other Jeff to do it or Katie to do it. It's just you. But that does come back to bravery and being courageous and finding that confidence in your own voice. Improv does help with that. (laughs) I think improv helps with that. And also finding something that you can take ownership in. And by that, I'm not talking about building a whole business, but for example, people who are in the architecture office, what's something at the office that you can kind of claim as your own? And for me, it was mentoring. That was like my baby. But other people can you know, plan CEO and lunch and learns. They can have this other thing where they're like, I'm going to teach this boot camp in Rhino. You know, you can have something that's yours and that you develop and that you share. And over time, when you do it, you're like, yeah, dang, I did that. Like that makes you feel good about yourself. And that shows, it's like these baby projects that are your own and they help build that confidence. So I think that's helpful. Yeah, I think there's a, I don't know if irony is the word I want, but I often, you know, when code switching comes up, one thing that pops into my mind a lot, especially sort of in the way that we're using it here is, you know, you're being a chameleon kind of in a way, right? I'm I'm blending in, I'm changing so that I match everybody else. And I look at some of the students that I teach and this isn't an indictment on students or anything like that. Again, I think it's sort of a, an age and experience thing maybe, but I also know adults that are the same, but the wanting to fit in piece, the wanting to be the same piece, sometimes lack of self-awareness can certainly be a part of that. But, you know, you've mentioned being part of a team, pick a sport or a, you know, performing arts or whatever it is. It's very, very rare that we need a team where everybody is the same and everybody has the same skill sets it's more likely that I need everybody that's on this team to play to their strengths and to be willing, not only doing that, but being willing and enthusiastic about playing to their strengths because that's what they bring, right? That's the advantage that they bring to the team. Now, it's really easy for me to sit here and say that, right? Again, back to the courage piece of it. But if there are students out there that are listening or young people or or otherwise, I think that's important to understand. And, you know, many of us grow up with all kinds of baggage. Some of it that we've created, we've imagined on our own, and some of it's not. But it's important for us to understand that that uniqueness, I think, as long as we can get into that yes, because, or we get into the yes, because, I think that's where the magic is. That's how we can do this together. I think ultimately that's what's important about all of these different topics that we're talking about. And I think it also, I mean, team is a great word because architecture is completely team-based. And also people are probably project managers. And it's like, well, how do you make a team want to do what you need them to do? And to your point, I think in terms of just like in general, like employee engagement and especially like after the pandemic and just getting people excited to do stuff, I think a lot of it has to do with getting everyone aligned on a shared goal. And then it's like, well, let me have you each play to your strengths and figure out how do we get to that goal together. So there is an idea of being the best version of yourself, which is individual, but you're also working towards a team goal. 
And so that's the cool balance. But yeah, when I think about what is the strongest team that I want, and I would never pick people that are exactly like me because it would not make us stronger, you know? So that's a good point. It's right back to improv. <laughs> it's <laughs> always, Improv is pretty, pretty simple in that way that it can tie into everything just because of that yes and <laughs> portion. <laughs> I highly recommend everybody take it. It's nice and it's freeing in a way that there's so many like rules that society puts on you or like people around you that you, it doesn't feel that free sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of just being able to just not go in with any practice and just be and say, and whatever's within you is within you. And whatever you're going to say in that moment is what it is. Like our teacher was like, whatever you say is like meant to be like, there's no mistake. There are literally no mistakes that you can make. And so it's basically a great exercise in getting out of your head and building a confidence where you, you don't care what other people think. And you also are less harsh on yourself. You can't be like, oh, that was so stupid that I, I mean, like maybe in the beginning, but over time you're like, yeah, I don't, I don't care that I didn't get a laugh because I think it's funny. And that's totally okay. That didn't resonate with the audience. <laughs> you just care a little less about what people think, which I think is a really it's really hard to get to, but it's a really great quality to have. Do you always think it's funny? I, so whenever I, <laughs> whenever I write a joke initially, I'm like, this is go This is a good topic and I know it. And then I'll like reread it a million times and I'll, well, how I work is like, I type and then I print out and then I scratch out and then I rewrite. And then it's very like back and forth. And then somehow it just gets in my brain and it's memorized. But after like the, the 15th time of practicing something, I'm like, oh, shoot, is it still funny? Because it's the 15th time that I've heard that joke. Yeah. So there is definitely a sense of like, yeah, this joke can bomb on stage. Like there's a very good percentage that it might not get the laugh. And that's, you know, me and it's in my head. And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes like one crowd will laugh entirely at your joke. Mm -hmm. And then you'll say the same joke in front of another crowd and they won't. I did this one stand-up set at the Taste of Korea in Chicago. And the front row was all really cute old Asian grandmothers. And they didn't know any English. And I was like, this is going to be a tough crowd. But I was like, but it is what it is. Like, my jokes probably won't resonate with them, but I still did it and I still had a great time, you know? So yeah, there are going to be times when your joke does not hit. And I think also part of it is acknowledging that and like making fun of yourself on stage for it too. Because then people are like, yeah, we can all relate that that joke didn't hit, right? So <laughs> we can all laugh about that. And then you're on the same page again. Yeah. So that's why it's always good to like test in front of an audience too. A lot of comedians will go to open mics and test their material before a really big event because you need to make sure that you're writing the joke in a way that will get the laugh. But yeah, I think the truth is whenever people start writing the joke, they think it's going to be good. But depending on the wording, it can go downhill. <laughs> so if the judge of good comedy is the laugh, what is the measuring stick for good architecture? What are you looking for? Yeah, for me. So I think everyone has a different opinion. I think at the base of it, architecture that makes you feel something. Mm -hmm. I think in general. Yeah, you can hate a piece of architecture, but I guess in terms of just feeling something when you walk into the space, because 
it's easy to just put program where it needs to go. But giving someone something to talk about, I think, is the base level. But I also think having architecture that can be understood by the community. And many ways, it's like, can you diagram your building? Can you make your concept? And I use concept and thesis like pretty interchangeably. Even when I teach my students, I'm like, architecture is very much like writing a paper. You need to have a thesis, which is a concept, and then you build upon it. So like, can your concept or your main idea, for those of you who are an architect, can it be understood by a person who's there without you explaining it? So I tend to like buildings that if I were a student and my teacher was like, go draw a diagram of what that building means, and I'm able to do it, I think that's successful because I figured it out. The architect didn't tell me that, you know, it's supposed to be a big block on force. You know what I mean? It's like, I figured it out without your help. And I think that's really important to me because I think that one, it means you thought of a concept in the first place, and then you were actually able to implement it and people can understand it. And the best are the ones that have a concept, but resonate completely with the community that you're building it for. So this is an example, but Beinecke Library on Yale campus. I don't know if you know, it's SOM building. It's basically like a like a concrete block that's levitating over like this glass little box on the inside. And they chiseled the stone so thin that light penetrates and it like glows on the inside. And you can tell as a student, okay, clearly the books need to be protected so they can't have sunlight. So that's why they did what they did. But it's so beautiful and they manipulated the stone so well that it doesn't feel like you're in a concrete like silo. So you clearly talk to the people who are using the building. We can't have light touch. You know what I mean? So it's like you did the research, you figured out what makes sense, and then you made it beautiful because that's your job as the architect. And it's experiential too. So I think if you hit those three, that's the mark. It seems to me if you have to explain the design, it's a little bit like having to explain the joke, and that would not be yeah. a good thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it should be that you, your job as the architect or the community, you're doing the work so that the people can enjoy it <laughs> and understand it without you having to explain it. That's totally true. Yeah. Well, I think that litmus test of an architecture that makes me feel something, I was thinking about that as you said it, it's... I have that same test for a lot of things, music, art, you know, so maybe it's all in that same realm. I'm not sure. But yeah, wouldn't that make life better if everything that we encountered and experienced made us feel something or we were focused on what? On experience, I guess, mm -hmm. rather than thing. And that's how people connect mm -hmm. through feelings. That's like the biggest, strongest way to connect with people is through emotion. I think if you can do that with architecture, that's incredible. Like you can imagine for, I mean, just take any piece of architecture that you walk into and everyone who walks in is like, whoa, mm -hmm. you don't know the person who's to the left of you or to the right of you, but you're both like, yo, are you seeing that? You know, you're already connected in that way, creating that sort of shared space and that shared feeling. I think that's really a powerful experience. Bringing it all back around, right? Making it relatable. And if I feel something, you feel something, Katie feels something, we may all feel something slightly different, but we can relate to the space, the experience, the joke, the, you know, fill in the blank. It's like watching a movie. It's like watching a movie and afterwards you're like, what do you want to talk about for the movie? And there are some buildings that 
I'll visit and then I'll leave and I'll be with people who aren't even architects. And it's like, so what did we think? You know, it was a building that was that cool or powerful that you have to talk about it when you leave. I think that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Quite a standard. <laughs> Good luck. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's hard to do, of course, but I think, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just thinking about places that I love to visit and places that really stick out to me and buildings that have had an impact on me, you know, in that way. And I think those are the ones that I find most enjoyable. And I think it'd be cool if we strived in a little bit. I mean, maybe your budget doesn't allow it, but you, you try a little bit, you know, to make someone. Yeah. But how, (laughs) all right. You know, I get it. Right. I get where we're going here, but how much does it cost to create experience? It's space. We're creating space. The thing is, I think you can do it without money, though, if you do the research properly. Yeah, I agree. I think you pick and choose your battles because we all know what value engineering is. And, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, so you pick moments and maybe your whole building doesn't, but maybe a moment in your building does, Yeah, you know, or maybe it is in the layout and you figured it out in the layout and you really don't need that much glitz and glam and the other parts of it. So I think obviously like when you visit a world-renowned building, you might not have the budget to do that. Of course, we all know that. But on a smaller scale, I think you can pick where it counts and what to do in that small portion. Yeah. Certainly there are people listening right now, you know, my client won't go for this, that, or the other. So we're getting back to that realm of courage and storytelling and how can you make it important for your client? How can you convince your client that it's important? I don't know the right way to to approach that necessarily. I mean, that's the biggest thing about storytelling and architecture is your is convincing your client. Yeah. If you just show them, oh, this is what we're thinking, and they don't know the story behind it, or you know, your customer said this, that's where we're building our whole idea from. This will actually influence your business in a positive way. You have to build the story to convince them. And yeah, they might not pick the entirety of the design or you might edit it. But that idea of storytelling, I cannot emphasize enough, is so important in any of your presentations to your clients. You know, Having that skill to back up what you made in a human way, like in a way that will affect them, I think is really important and a really positive way to like get the clients on the same page, but also figure out the essence of like what needs to be done. Yeah. I'm running our startup incubator right now. There are 11, 11 teams going through the incubator. And we talk about this and we'll talk about it more because they're headed towards demo day in three weeks, I think it is. And, you know, we can often think of the, the glitz and the glam, as you said earlier, in their world, in startup world, it's all glitz and glam. It's all AI. It's all this tech. It's all, you know, it's all focused on AEC. So some of it's project management, some of it's BIM, some of, you know, these different things. But you can't go in and rely on, oh, well, we've got AI. Every single team has AI. The storytelling becomes incredibly important. We can think of that as such a basic, primitive human thing. And maybe that's why it's even more important in this high-tech AI tech startup world, those two have to work together or they're not going to, this makes it sound pretty heavy, but they're not going to survive. Yeah, it's a lot like UX research. It's like, Mm -hmm. how do you connect with the 
consumer, the clients, literally how architecture is and how we view it. And I think the one big tip that I would have for people who are becoming an architect is try to learn how to like write concisely and to prove a point Mm -hmm. because that will help you in how you present and how you think as a designer too. Yeah. I think that, and you know, you mentioned UX user experience design. That's, I mean, that's architecture. It is hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. It is. It's, It's the one thing that's been tickling my brain the whole time is you've talked about yes, because Randy Olson worked for NASA. Are you familiar with Randy Olson? Basically, his three-step storytelling process that he took, learned from South Park. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody learned that. You can tell your story in a sentence. Yeah. yeah. Using and but therefore, right? Mm, yeah. It's like, yeah, what is the problem and how to solve it, essentially? Yeah. It's oftentimes we... We did this and we did this and we did this and we did this. Well, that's not a story, right? That's a list of activities. Mm -hmm. We did this and we did this, but then this happened. Therefore, we had to do this. And that becomes a story, Mm -hmm. right? It's one sentence. And it's to me, it's pretty closely related to yes, because or yes, and it's how do we build these stories and how do we collaborate? Which is, I mean, we haven't even used that word, I don't think, in this whole hour that we've been talking, but that's... We use teamwork. <laughs> it, it is teamwork, yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah, it's just a, another word for it. But yeah. but yeah, this is fascinating. I'm really, really enjoying this. We could keep going for a long time, I think. But thanks so much for bringing these lessons and your experiences to this and the encouragement to have courage and also to take an improv class. <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. And I had so much fun talking about all of these topics with you too. Yeah, absolutely. It's great. We might have to might have to have you back and we'll dig deeper into some of these. It'd be fun. Yeah, I'm always down to nerd out. <laughs> so <laughs> Right on, right on. And for those of you that are in our audience, thank you for joining us today. It's been great having you here for our, uh, what, fourth week, I think, of our fall mm-hmm. season of Context and Clarity Live. We'll be back next week. And I said this before we went live, there's a strong possibility that I'm going to take an improv class. I'm challenging you all to do the same. If you've never done that before, when I'm out on the public speaking circuit, I spend a lot of time studying stand-ups because of their timing and their storytelling. It really helps me being present on stage, but I have never, I've never done an improv class. And I think I'm going to do that. So that's my challenge to all of you. Take an improv class, figure out how to bring that into your personal life, but also your professional life. I think it could greatly improve the profession. So thanks, Hibba. Thanks, Katie. Thanks to all of you out there. And we will see you next week. Until then, have a great week. Well, what do you think? Did you hear something in this conversation that you can use in your practice or even in your daily life? If the topic of this conversation is of particular interest to you, I invite you to go over to the Entree Architect Network. It's a place where entrepreneur architects just like you gather to have conversations on these topics and support each other in their practices and in their lives. You can find the Entree Architect Network at network.entrearchitect.com. And if you were so inspired by this conversation that you'd like to watch the entire Context and Clarity Live episode, head on over to the Entree Architect YouTube channel. 
there's a playlist there that has all of the full Context and Clarity Live episodes. You can also have the Context and Clarity podcast delivered to you every week. Just give us a rating and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Your likes, your ratings, and your shares help us and help other entrepreneur architects like you to gather together. And you can help us build the largest worldwide community of small firm architects. And if you love content like this, check out Gable Media. It's a multimedia network for people that care about the built environment. And it's the home of Context and Clarity. With Gable's growing family of podcasts and video channels, I know that you'll find something there that interests you. You can learn more at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. So thanks for listening. I hope this conversation has inspired you to think about how you can build your business into something that allows you to practice the way that you want to practice. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.